Hello everybody, Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another edition, a Friday edition of the Money Mitch Effect. And you know the deal, it's sports talk on this podcast. Glad to have you listening, wherever you may be, all over the world. Hopefully my outreach is getting there. We got a good show planned for you today. Going to talk basketball first up with Chris Scruggs, former Sloop Billiken like myself, college radio co-host for four years. We're going to break down the second round of the playoffs, a chippy game between the Celtics and the Wizards. Cavs and Warriors appear to be rolling, and some Spurs Rockets talk as well as the injury to Tony Parker, and then my good buddy Ron Schultz, who recently moved to New York City to take a job with Yahoo. We're going to talk about that gig, his trip to Philly for the draft, where he got to see some of that, and some Philly sports talk as well as some Syracuse college basketball talk as well. It's the Money Mitch Effect. you got to be feeling good. It's Friday. Here we go. Time to start the show, and we're off. NBA playoff talk now on the Money Mitch Effect. And joining me on the show, on the phone line, recurring guest Chris Scruggs. Chris, thanks for joining the show again. Thanks for having me again. It's really an honor. Chris, we've been talking NBA a few times throughout the year. We're into the playoffs, second round, and we've pretty much reached the midway point at some of these series. It's hard to believe. I like the fact that they took some of the rest days out of the schedule. They're playing more basketball frequently, and we're getting into some dicey situations with some of these series. We're going to start in the Eastern Conference with the Wizards and the Celtics, which, as it stands right now as we record this on a Thursday night, it's 2-0 Celtics, but the Wizards look likely to make that 2-1, leading by about 20, 28 points, I think, in the second half. Chris, the Wizards, I'll start with that perspective. They came into this series with the Celtics with high expectations. Boston looked a little vulnerable. They had big leads in both those first two games, and they just couldn't get the job done. Do you think they can kind of fix that on the fly, or do you think they're really going to regret not stealing a game in Boston early? Honestly, I uh, think they're going to regret not stealing a game in Boston if they don't win a series, series and if the uh, series goes six or seven. It just seems as if the Wizards had everything in control in the first two games until the fourth quarter, and then the second game until the fourth quarter in overtime. I think that comes from a lack of bench production. Yeah, you mentioned it, and that's one of the big points I've been making the last couple of weeks. If we were doing starting five rankings, by every metric, Chris, this is a top three or top four team starting lineup-wise, but their bench has been hardly giving them anything. And I look at, Chris, the first quarters of all these games, they've been up by double digits every time. I mean, both games in Boston, they were up significantly, and they just couldn't get the job done. I do wonder if too much pressure is being put on their star players Wall still had his stats up, but Bradley Beal, we'd like to see a little more out of him in games one and two. It was good, but it wasn't great, and I think we're starting to expect greatness out of him. More in particular, game two, I thought Bradley Beal was real disappointing. He had a few chances to make big plays for his team, and he just fell short. I think one that comes to mind is the game-winning shot where he had an easy about six, eight-feet shot, and he just airballed, and that kind of showed his night and how he's been playing the first two games of the series. And not to put too much on the bench, but we could also put some of the blame on Bradley Bill, one of their star players. He hasn't really been big Brad Bill in these first two games, and that definitely hurt them. You know, there's a lot to like about this team. It was a trendy pick even before the playoffs started. It starts with Wall. And, Chris, I don't know what the, the, the ending legacy of his career is going to be. There's too much basketball left. But you watch him play, and 
you see that at any given night he could be the best player on the court. And that's a cliche way to put it, but it's true. In a league with LeBron, with Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, Wall can be, in a flash, as good as any one of those players. And I think we're just starting to realize it as the general public is concerned basketball-wise. Yeah, and I definitely agree. And throughout his career, Wall has had games like he had in Game 2 with 43 points and 17 assists. But for some odd reason, when Wall plays big, it seems to come in a loss in another play on another team. I have 53 like Isaiah Thomas had the other night, so it kind of gets overshadowed. You know, he had 43 and 17 in a loss, but Isaiah Thomas had 53 in a win, and I think that's the story of John Wall's career thus far. He plays big. He can match up with yeah. anyone, but it just seems to be sometimes a little short, even if he does drop 40 or 50. Surprised they didn't win both games, although they're still, you know, in this series with this win tonight that's looking more and more likely by the moment. And, you know, you got to go to Boston. I know it's not pretty a lot. They they aren't the flashiest team. Star power is fleeting compared to other teams. But they found a way to dig themselves out of game one, down 16 to nothing right off the bat. And then game two was the Isaiah Thomas show, Chris. 53 points, and it, it is remarkable to see a player – of his size, only five foot nine, be able to score with ease and get better as the game goes on. What do you think it is about his game? Because he's been the best player in fourth quarters this year, and frankly, it's not even close when you look at the numbers. Yeah, I agree, and I know this might sound like a, a catch twenty two, but I think it's his size. As the game progresses, players tend to get tired, and I think as the game progresses, I think Isaiah Thomas still has a lot of energy left when that fourth quarter comes. And he's so short that it's crazy that we talk about his size as, a, as an advantage, but he show, he's so short that he could pretty much get around anybody in the NBA. And he's so quick that he could stop on a dime and pull up or he could keep going to the cup and use his body to get off a clean layup or whatnot. And I think that's just a huge advantage for him, his quickness, his endurance, and I think his agility is what, uh, and actually his height is what put him at an advantage in the fourth quarter, and he's extremely skilled for his size. You know, I think, too, Chris, uh, the coaching the coaching side of this thing in the first two games, I thought Brad Stevens did a much better job than Scott Brooks. He dug his team out of it. He, he mixed up looks on both ends of the court. We know Isaiah's not the best defender. He found a way to mix and mash how they were going to throw different defenders at Wall and Beal. But in game three of this series... Otto Porter switched on to Thomas a lot of this game, and I don't think it's any coincidence that Thomas is having his worst game of the series so far. So that's something to look for. If Porter can continue to guard Isaiah Thomas like this, the Celtics could be in, in store for some trouble. Yeah, and I definitely agree. That's one thing I failed to mention. It seems as if in the first two games, Isaiah Thomas was getting a switch on a big man every play. He was either getting switched on the Morris swing or the uh, center guard tighting. He was pretty much cooking them every single time they were on them. So I think this game, they definitely made an adjustment that paid off. Yeah, they certainly did. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, it was testy tonight. Kelly Oubre getting ejected after getting a, a hard screen, an illegal screen from Kelly Olenek, who's at the center of it again. Chris, it's important to note, these teams just do not like each other. You add some volatile players like Marcus Marquise Morris in there as well. Uh, and even Drebko getting into as well for the Celtics, Jay Crowder, uh, yeah, Jay Crowder as well. This could be a long series. This could this could definitely keep going. I don't think the Celtics are out of the woods just yet. I wouldn't be shocked if the Wizards ran off four straight just 
off the strength of how dominant they've been looking. Even in their two losses, I thought they should have won a game. But I think it's going to be a great series, and I think this series is going to ultimately come down to coaching and timely decisions. Yeah, Celtics uh, have been good at home, and the Wizards got to prove that they can maintain a lead, that they can win on the road. They're going to have to do it to win this series, and they're going to have an opportunity, but we'll see if they can hold on to the lead as the series progresses. Boston and Washington. All right, moving on to the other series in the Eastern Conference with Chris Scruggs on the Money Mitch Effect. And Chris, the Cleveland Cavaliers are yet again in the process of owning the Toronto Raptors up two games to love. Now, I know last year the series was 2-0 by two big margins going back to Toronto, and then Toronto won two games. But it's hard to take any positives away from the first two games for the Raptors. Chris, we thought this team would be better. We thought their bench was revamped. They were they were designed to, to compete and maybe beat Cleveland, but it hasn't worked out. Why do you think they failed miserably in the first two games of the series? Uh, it just seems weird to me that it seems they start off sluggish, not really playing as if they're playing the defending champions. Then in spurts, they'll play hard, but they don't play hard enough the entire game. And I also think that it seems that they are somewhat scared of the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cleveland Cavaliers come out throwing alley-oops off the backboard, hitting trick shots, doing all type of wizardry with the ball, and it just seems like they demoralize the Raptors. And on top of that, DeMar DeRozan hasn't been playing his best. I think he was 2 for 10 or 2 for 11 in the last game, and he hasn't found his stride yet. So they're definitely going to have to win a game in Cleveland if they want to win a series, and I don't know if that can happen. Well, it's interesting because – First of all, I don't know how this team is so bad in the first game of series, but it seems like they're always just throwing away the first game. And I don't know if that's not being prepared, if it's not being ready to engage in a series, but that's just who Toronto's been even in the first round as a highly favored seed, which we've seen in the past few years. But, Chris, it comes down to this for me. Cleveland has this great offense that with a lot of shooters, you put LeBron with a lot of guys like Kyrie Irving, like Love, they added Kyle Korver, Channing Fry. I mean, that's a deadly offense regardless of who's on the court. If they're shooting well, they're going to they're gonna be very dominant. But you look at that same lineup, Chris, and they can't defend very well. Toronto's not holding that lineup, that high-powered offense, accountable on the other end of the court. And it goes back to what you're saying. I mean, DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, DeRozan in particular, plays a lot of one-on-one, which even when it's on, I don't think it's going to – it's going to do the damage that playing team basketball will. I just don't see a way how that formula can win against a team as good and as stacked offensively as Cleveland. Yeah, and I definitely agree on both sides of the ball. The Cleveland Cavaliers are just better offensively and they're better defensively. And to refer back to the Celtics series, one thing that I noticed with the Celtics and Wizards this game, the Wizards start attacking Isaiah Thomas, and maybe the Raptors need to start attacking attacking all the weaknesses in the defense. Maybe put Kyrie Irving in some ISO situations or Shannon Fry in some ISO situations or Kyle Corbin when they're on the court. And maybe if they exploit other players and tire them down, maybe that could help them somewhat in the series. I mean, is it fair to say, and I don't want to diminish LeBron's greatness, but is it fair to say that Kyrie really makes this team go? Because you know LeBron's going to give you what he's going to give you. But I think this team really hits their peak when Kyrie is having the couple games that he's had scoring 30, creating for his teammates. Is he the real key to this offense? Uh, I, I think so. I think LeBron, we know what LeBron gives you, and we know LeBron is the best player. But like you said, the key to the offense, I think, is Kyrie. He could uh, score when he wants to. He could hit timely baskets. 
he can also get teammates involved. And like you mentioned earlier, when he's scoring and getting teammates involved, I think he makes the team go more so than LeBron James. I mean, I just think you have to make him defend, right? Like you can't just let him play offense and not have to worry about the other side of the ball. If they're going to have any chance, Lowry's got to step it up. they got to take it to Kyrie. And I just quite frankly, ugly up the game a little bit. I don't think they can beat Cleveland in, in a track meet. Yeah, and they definitely can. Like we mentioned earlier, they need to put players like Kyrie in some tough defensive situations, Kyle Korver, whoever's on the floor who's a defensive liability. The uh, Raptors need to attack them and put them in pick-and-roll situations and try to attack them if they're going to play ISO basketball. We'll see what happens. But one last thing, and we know that Cleveland looks good, but a quick, ugly loss for Toronto, Chris, is that going to pretty much prove that this is their ceiling? Is it time for some major changes for Toronto? Because this will be a couple years in a row where they've had good years but ultimately get shown the door in pretty rude fashion. Uh, unlike the Clippers, I think Toronto, me, I'm always up for the uh, switcheroo and blowing up the team. But honestly, unlike the Clippers, I don't think Toronto had enough time quite yet. I think DeMar DeRozan really just came into his own, in my opinion, this year. He's always been a great player, but to me, this year was the year he really came into his own. So maybe I'll give him maybe one or two more seasons. If nothing happens, then, you know, I change up. But I don't think just quite yet they're ready for changes maybe with the coaching but outside of that i think they have a good unit good team and maybe they can add a few more pieces and do something next year and the year after yeah maybe a big who can score i mean that could be what they're missing something that the clippers have had that the toronto has just not really had it'll be interesting to monitor let's move now chris to the western conference money mitch effect chris scruggs talking second round nba playoff action Chris, the Rockets and the Spurs were the only series that was one all. Well, we still don't know about the Warriors game two tonight, but the Rockets and the Spurs were one all after two games. Two different games. The Rockets winning a blowout in game one in San Antonio. The Spurs returning the favor in game two. But before we get to that, we got to talk about the news that broke today. We saw it last night. The injury. Tony Parker is out for the season with a torn quad tendon. It's a back-breaking injury for anyone, including Tony Parker. And I have to just throw this out there. I mean, as accomplished as he is, Chris, he'll be 35 in about two weeks. Is it fair to say we might not see him be on the court again? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think if he is on the court again, I don't think he will quite be the same. He's definitely had a drop-off since the start, Tony Parker, but he was still a productive player. I think if he does manage to come back, he won't even be the same player he was this year. So I think this may be the end of Tony Parker. He might look to future endeavors. Yeah, it's just it's tough. I mean, what you touched on, he had a pretty pedestrian year for his standards up until, honestly, up until that Memphis series. At the end of it, he he, he turned back the clock. And, and with Tony, you always had that sense that he could – have a couple throwback vintage games. He he went from being the youngest point guard in the league, starting point guard in the league, to now the oldest. It's safe to say. And real quick, I just think that he's a guy that, I mean, he's going to go down as the best French point guard ever, or best French basketball player ever. But, I mean, his legacy, I, I think, can't be understated, Chris. This is a guy that played a lot of competitive basketball for a lot of years. And his style was unlike any that I've ever seen. I mean, just his, his unorthodox way of finishing at the hoop. It's somebody that I think will go down ultimately as one of the greats of his generation. Yeah, I definitely agree. When Tony Parker came into the league with the Spurs, he was an unknown player, and after about a year, two, three, he became a 
very popular player, all-star, a very clutch player. Uh, the B6-1, 180, he was just uh, a monster. He could finish around the rim. He was quick. He still has that quickness to this day, and he was just a clutch player. One game that stands out me stands out to me the most is a game he had in the finals against the Miami Heat when he was playing LeBron, yeah. and it seems like he was just hitting every clutch shot. Yeah, no, I remember uh, the year they lost, actually. Yeah, it was the year they lost, too. And he hit the winner yep. where he slipped, maintained his dribble. You know, everybody kind of stopped playing. He got up and banked it in. I thought, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's won four championships. He, he's he been at the top of every team that they've had. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But getting back to this series now, Chris, I, I can't think of two polar opposite games. In game one, and this is where I'll kind of say it's, it's more to me a reflection of the Rockets. In game one, they were hitting everything. All their threes are a three-point shooting team. They were hitting everything. In game two, they could barely hit anything. And it starts with James Harden. A great game one, but three of 17 in game two. Do you think this formula is going to work? Do you think the Rockets are going to just keep taking shots and hope that they fall? Or do you think they'll make any adjustments going back to Houston for game three? Uh, well, if you talk to their coach, they're going to keep doing the same thing. Keep taking shots. Keep playing fast-paced. If the three is not there, that's the only time you drive it. And it's hard to say whether or not this team is going to advance past this round. I think James Harden can't continue to go three for 17, and they think they're going to win. So they're definitely going to have to get better play out of James Harden. But I think if you get better play out of James Harden, then the team will play better. And I think that's the catalyst to the team, man. So that's pretty much the key. Yeah, yeah, and I would add to that too, Chris. I mean, I'm a big Harden proponent. I might be in the minority, but I think he should be the MVP this year, even though he probably – won't win it but I think what one of the big adjustments that Popovich and the Spurs did is they tried to angle their defense to make Harden a shooter and a scorer and he didn't really pass the ball to his teammates they have so many weapons especially with the addition of Lou Williams you add to Ryan Anderson Eric Gordon even Clint Capella driving to the hoop and I think if he dishes the ball that's when Houston's almost an unstoppable offense but if he just shoots I, I think it takes the ball and it, it keeps other guys cold while letting the Spurs set their defense to just stop Harden as a scorer. Yeah, and I definitely agree. James Harden definitely has to get his teammates more so involved. But even getting his teammates involved, if he's not knocking down his shot, then it's going to be harder to get them involved. And switching to the other side of the ball, they still gave up 121 points. So they're still going to be tough to win when you give up 121 points. I mean, that's the thing. If the Rockets had a top-five defense – an elite-level defense, they could really be a legit contender, but they have to keep scoring a lot because they know they're probably going to give it up on the other end. And, Chris, looking at the Spurs' side, we talked about Game 1, how the Spurs looked looked awful. They couldn't do anything right. It was a very frustrating night in San Antonio. Game 2 was one of the best playoff performances I've seen in recent memory by Kawhi Leonard. His stat line was pretty impeccable, 13-16 shooting, 35 points, 8-7. and seven along with only giving up three points all game on the defensive end. It's hard to say that he's going to be able to do that every game, but you got to like San Antonio's chances if that version of Kawhi Leonard or something close to it is going to show up for the rest of the series. I agree. When you take 16 shots and only miss three, nine times out of ten, I'm going to assume your team won, and not to mention the defense he plays. Uh, he's just a tenacious player, fearless. He reminds me of a small forward version of Tim Duncan, he doesn't really say much, don't really show too much emotion, but he brings it every night. And you got to just love the way he plays the game. And I got to ask you this too, as a uh, as a fan of Kobe Bryant's, 
They worked out a lot together. It was reported in the summer in L.A. where Kawhi Leonard is originally from. Can you, uh, uh, honest question, can you see changes in Kawhi's game this year that might be influenced by working with a guy, uh, with a legend like Kobe? Honestly, it's a few times I watch the Spurs play, and when Kawhi takes a shot, I might yell Kobe at the TV. I think a few aspects of Kobe game that I've seen in Kawhi game, he has a nice a nicer pull-up jumper now, and he gets in a post and do the, you know, the Jordan Kobe shake and hit somebody with the fadeaway. And those two aspects of Kawhi's game that I've seen this year that uh, I think he learned from Kobe over the summer. Yeah, I mean, it's also a guy that grew up in L.A., so you know he was looking up to Kobe and looking up to what his game was. And, and everything about his approach to the game, from what we've heard, is just willing to learn, willing to get better, to take new advice. And he's going to have to be great in this series where the Rockets have that potent offense. San Antonio looks to Kawhi Leonard to score. They also look to another guy, Chris, who's been underwhelming for most of the playoffs, and that's LaMarcus Aldridge, even dating back to the season. He took a lot of flack, especially after game one where he basically no-showed. Game two, he was better. Do you think that was a step in the right direction? I mean, it's been a rough year for Aldridge. Do you think he can bounce back in the playoffs? Uh, I think he could bounce back. Aldridge is an amazing talent. He could knock down. He could play inside, outside, and he's just an overall big body. I think the major issue is I don't know if he necessarily fits the Spurs system. It's an up-and-down game. And the Rockets put him in a lot of pick and rolls. So on the defensive end, he has to defend a guard or someone coming at him once he uh, gets switched off in a pick. And then when you run him back up the court, he gets the ball and he gets double real quick. So I think he got a little nervous. And I heard him mention in the interview that he's going to be more patient on the offensive side. And I think that's what happened in game two. He was just more patient and wasn't worried about the double team coming as quickly. Yeah, I agree with that, too. I don't know that he necessarily fits the Spurs system, and sometimes the ball kind of stops with him offensively. But where they really need him is on the glass because that's where they have a distinct advantage over Houston. Aldridge is, a, is an underrated rebounder when he's engaged. You'd like to see a little more of that. And, Chris, while we kind of move, move ahead here, looking two games three and possibly all the way up to seven in this series, it's 1-1. It's anybody's guess what game three will look like. Who are some X factors, you think, on both teams? as they try to get an advantage in this series? Well, I think we could look for Patty Mills to step up. I imagine he'll be inserted into the starting lineup, which will give him more playing time. So for the Spurs, I think Patty Mills could be that X factor that steps up and possibly knock down a few, maybe three to five threes and help them pull out the victory. And I think for the Rockets, an X factor could be we really haven't seen too much for Lou Williams, so I imagine with them going home, maybe he gives you a 20-point game, 25-point game, and maybe help seal the victory for the Rockets. So yeah. those would be two X-Factors I would choose. You know, I'd also add Eric Gordon to that list. Gordon and Williams oh, yeah. are two great ball handlers as well, and they're the only guys other than Harden where I'd feel comfortable if I was a Rockets fan with them initiating the offensive set, making good decisions in addition to knocking down some shots. San Antonio, I think you're right on Mills. I think the other guy is Danny Green because he's a guy that's a knockdown shooter, especially from the corner and in transition, but he's also an underrated defender. And they're going to have to figure out a way, especially if Harden gets cooking, to slow him down. You know, With, with the Parker injury, I mean, it, it, that's something we didn't really mention, that Mills is going to have to play a lot more. They're going to be kind of scrambling. I know Parker wasn't playing his best basketball clearly but they're gonna have to scramble to replace the minutes and the and the leadership that that the parker void is going to fill 
Yeah, I definitely agree. I think uh, more so that will fall on who's going to be in a rotation off the bench once Mills is inserted into the starting lineup. And there's been several games I've seen this season and last season where Mills was in a game and Parker wasn't playing good. And, you know, I honestly felt like Pop should have rolled Mills more so than put Parker back in the game. But I definitely understand his reasoning. So I don't expect any slack from Mills. But as far as the bench players who's going to step up in Mills' role, I think that would be important as well. And who knows, we might even see the rookie Murray play a little bit as well as they look for a spark offensively. Well, it's going to be exciting there. Last series to talk about on the Money Mitch Effect with Chris Scruggs. In the second round, Golden State and Utah. Game two tips off later tonight. By the time you listen to this, you will have known who won. And I would be shocked, Chris, if it is Utah. It's a great story getting to the second round with Quinn Snyder, the former Mizzou coach, uh, moving forward, onward, and upward. But Golden State with or without Kevin Durant the entire playoffs and, and Steve Kerr going through his back troubles, they look like a buzzsaw. I don't know how Utah can slow him down, Chris. Your, your guess is as good as mine, but Golden State definitely peaking at the right time. Golden State is peaking. I didn't expect them to have a challenge in the first two rounds. I think with this Golden State team, just like LeBron's team, you can't really judge them until the uh, conference finals and the NBA finals. So I'm not necessarily shocked at all what's going on right now but one thing I would say that Utah could do and I saw them doing at the end of game one they just really need to attack the basket vigorously and you know relentlessly I think one thing they were doing was selling for too many jumpers and if they keep putting pressure on the Golden State bigs I think they could have a better outcome I wouldn't say that would cost them to win but I think the games could be closer and more competitive Right, they need to they need to slow it down. You know, they can't they can't try to go shot for shot with Golden State. I just I don't know, Chris. I think I wouldn't say they'd have much of a chance if everybody was healthy. But it's clear Rudy Gobert's not a hundred percent, and that's just a killer because that's a guy we know what the weakness on Golden State is if they have one. It's the interior. It's you know the big bodies inside. I think Rudy Gobert, if he was healthy, could make a huge difference. But I don't know. I just don't see it. And if it goes longer than five games, I'll be completely shocked. Yeah, and on top of uh, Rudy Gobert's help, uh, one stat I saw today while watching uh, television was that Gordon Hayward Hayward is averaging the least amount of points against any team. Well, his worst games, points for a game, are against the Warriors. And I think that's another factor as well. Our best player just isn't giving him even his normal or half of his normal production. So on top of Rudy Gobert's injury, I think it's Gordon Hayward's play as well. He's not giving him his usual 22, 25 points a game. Yeah, in yeah, it's tough. I mean, with Golden State with the weaponry and the firepower they have and knowing that, you know, they could be down and still go on a quick run in a couple minutes and just swing the game, it's going to be scary. I I want to ask you this though as we as we move ahead here. There's some rumblings now. Do you think it's reasonable? Do you think they have a, a, a legitimate shot, Golden State? I know it's early, it's only been 5, but could they run the table in the postseason or at the very least maybe challenge what the 2001 Lakers did and lose only one game? Is that possible? I think they could challenge, but if I'm being honest, I don't think they were running table. Okay. I think once they get it to the next round and then if they make it to the NBA Finals, which I think they will, I think they will suffer a few losses. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I didn't hear too many people talking about in the last game, I kind of thought that Steph tweaked his ankle or something. He was kind of hobbling, so – you know, health is always an issue as well for this team. So we'll have to see. But I honestly don't think as the rounds progress that they will run a table or even lose just one or two games. 
Right? It's crazy. It makes you really appreciate <laughs> what the Lakers did. No one only losing one game, and it took the Iverson uh, game of his life to do that. But yeah, we'll have to see. It'll, it'll be exciting. Well, Chris Scruggs, Money Mitch effect. How do you see it going for this round? I mean, I think we, we're in agreement on Warriors and Cavs, but the other two series, who do you think ultimately wins them? Uh, the other two series, that's a, well, I'm going to go with the Wizards. I honestly think the Wizards are going to run off four straight. Wow. That's my prediction. I think they're just being too dominant, and I think once they get one victory, they're going to figure it out. It seems as if in every game they had at least a 17, 20-point lead even in the games they lost, but they end up losing. And then in the other series in the West between the Spurs and the Rockets, my heart tells me Rockets, but my mind tells me Spurs. So I think this time I'll go with my mind and just say the Spurs is going the Spurs are going to get it done. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Spurs and Celtics. I just don't know if Look, I just don't know if Washington's mature enough because they, I don't know that they could play any better than they did early in games one and two in Boston, and they still weren't able to win those games. So maybe they'll turn it around, but we'll have to see. I, I do think the Spurs were able to just outsmart and, and play better defense in crunch time. It's funny we haven't seen a close game in either, uh, in really either of those two series, so go figure there. Well, Chris, lastly, last thing, I need your opinion on one matter. Is it realistic to expect people to buy a $495 shoe and $220 flip-flops? <laughs> That's not know. realistic at all. I'm talking about the baller, baller brand, of course, so the LeVar Ball, yeah, you know. But I don't know. I, I'm, I just, I don't know. Maybe they'll sell, but I don't know how. I mean, it's tough. I don't. It's hard for kids to convince their parents to spend that much money on it if they have it, let alone the families that, you know, aren't fortunate enough to have that kind of money. I just don't know what the marketing plan is there. I just... I wanted to hear what you had to say. What you had to say about that. Yeah, I actually like the antics of the ball father, but that's just totally unrealistic. And to think that no major shoe brand is going to even endorse it, that would make it even more unrealistic to think that the shoe would sell for five hundred dollars and two hundred dollars for some flip flops. <laughs> Let alone, yeah. why would you even want your fans to pay that? Honestly. Yeah, that's I saw what Shaq said today, and and while his shoe wasn't the best, I think it was a fair point. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I agree. The flip flops to me is even more ridiculous. <laughs> it's even more ridiculous. But there's always a method to his madness. And my only advice would be, you know, I know I know people on both sides of the fence that are that are fans of the ball antics and aren't fans. Two extremes there would be if you're not a fan, just don't just don't pay attention. You know, I mean, it's obvious that the publicity is driving it. So it's cool if you like it. It's cool if you don't. But if you don't, I don't think making a big stink of it is going to make a difference. If anything, it's going to push more people that way. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And do you mind if I say one thing? Yeah, go right ahead. I just want to give a shout out to Paul Pierce. He recently retired. I know I haven't been on your show in a while, but uh, he was a great player. And one thing that happened this year, I think a lot of young NBA players are very disrespectful. I heard, uh, Draymond Green once saying in a game earlier this yeah. season that you think you're going to get a farewell tour like, you know, Kobe. And I heard Draymond Green recently say something about Charles Barkley. And it's just, you know, I think Brandon James sent out a treat regarding Paul Perez. And I think it's just a lot of disrespect for a lot of NBA great teams. I just wanted to give a shout out to Paul Perez. He was a great player, great skill set, skill set, patient game, could match up with any NBA superstar ever, Kobe, you know, included at his height. If he was playing his best, though, 
that was a real great player. Yeah, definitely a great competitor too. And he had that mindset that I do think is lacking in not just basketball, but a lot of professional sports, Chris. I mean, he really believed that he was as good as anyone. And I, I know yeah. we might we might rip that at times. We might think it's funny when the skills aren't necessarily there in comparisons. But I think you need some of that. It, it, you're, I mean, I think it pushes you to higher levels when you really believe that you are as good as anyone on the court. And for Boston, you saw it with Paul Pierce all those years. It made him a better player. And, yeah, I'm with you. I, I wasn't his biggest fan through his whole career. Yeah. But you definitely respect the competitor and the skill set that he had. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, congrats to a great, great career for him. One of the one of the greats. Another member of his era that's out. One of the last ones, really, and uh, somebody that did a lot for the game of basketball. That I, I think a lot of younger players could could take some uh, umbrage in understanding what that was. Yeah, and one last thing, he had one of the best post game interviews ever. He uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. hit a game with a bank shot, <laughs> and uh, uh, the broadcaster asked, "What well, the interviewer asked him? Did you call a bank?" And he said, "No, I called a game." <laughs> That was. <laughs> I think that was the best post game interview ever. That was a really, really good interview, and it summed up everything about Paul Pierce. It was funny, but it was cocky, but it was also accurate. The guy was a competitor, and uh, even even in his last breaths as an NBA player, was still putting on a show. So hats off to Paul Pierce. Yeah. Well, Chris, this was fun. Thanks for coming on again. We'll have to try to sneak one in before the finals or before the draft. Is basketball season is heating up? But thanks again for coming on the show and talking some sports. And thanks again for having me anytime. It's always great to chop it up with my boy Chris. He is a very, very sharp basketball mind. Represents St. Louis very well. Knows his stuff. Glad he could come on the Money Mitch Effect and share his take on a lot of basketball playoff matters. Big thanks to Chris Scruggs again. All right, now it's time to switch it up and talk to Ryan Schiltz, who recently moved to New York City, took a job with Yahoo and the social media department of their sports team. And we're going to talk about that, the move out there, what a trek it was to get there. Some Philly sports with the draft, the Flyers coming second in the lottery despite having the 13th odds. Some Syracuse talk and just some general sports talk with my boy Ryan, who I haven't spoken to in a while. That's up next here on the Money Mitch Effect. Ron Schultz, here it is now. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect phone line, good friend of the show. Haven't talked in a in a while. Ron Schultz, Ron calling in from New York. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mitch. What's up, everybody? It's been a while, and uh, just to get all our listeners up to speed, Ron, you took a job out in New York City moving from L.A., which we were here sad to see you go, but it's got to be exciting now working for Yahoo Sports uh, in the social media department. What exactly was that process like, getting that job and then you know making the trek from L.A. all the way out east coast to New York? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely you know a big change, but me being from the east coast, it was kind of... Uh, a cool opportunity to to stay in the industry and work in sports, but also, you know, get closer to my family. So the job overall has been, you know, has been good. It's a completely new team. We're working on all the videos that you'd see under the headlines tab in the Yahoo Sports app, which just launched, you know, a couple of weeks ago. We're still learning, and but we're, uh, you know, we're getting a couple hundred thousand views every day, and it, it just keeps growing. So uh, everything's been good so far at the job the trip out here was amazing i mean i decided to uh 
get one of my high school buddies to fly out. We drove across the country, so I got to stop at a bunch of cool places and and uh, you know see all the uh, stopped at a bunch of different colleges and saw all the stadiums at uh, all the big colleges along the way, which is really cool too. Yeah, it sounds exciting seeing all those colleges that we watch on Saturday Saturdays along the way. And, you know, you mentioned working around on the headlines tabs that you see on Yahoo. Everybody's consuming media that way. Do you think it's changing in that direction? I mean, I know one of the things you're working on is just working on ways that people can better and easily consume sports information. Uh, do you think that's changing as we're getting you know further along into technology? I think absolutely. I think if there's an easier quicker way to digest as much information possible is like really the way that the world is going right now is people want as much information in a short amount of time as possible. So basically what, you know, what we're doing now is, is, you know, taking a a 500,000 word article and and making it into a quick, you know, video type slideshow where you can get the same information from that in a quick 30 to a minute, quick slideshow video, you know, and it's visual and people, people are, visual people now with our phones we're all attached to our phones and our computers and all that kind of stuff so i think it so far right now i think it's a good it's been a you know a good idea and a good venture um but i think really overall that's the way media is going is you know that quick visual type digestive information yeah well and i think sports is is perfect for that you think about all the news that breaks in a given sports day especially this time of year and the way people are, especially like you said, with being attached to their phones, they want quick information. They want to know what the headline is, and they want to move on. So I think on your end, developing a platform that can easily get that to people is—it's uh, definitely a game changer and something that's constantly being worked on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it also comes at you know a good time when it seems like a lot of the traditional powers in the sports world are going through a change, whether that be ESPN firing all their on their talents or whatever. It just seems like there's been a, a shift in, in the way that things are being done in the sports world. And, and to be honest, I mean, not to, not to trash anybody else, but right now with the, the current updates on, on the ESPN app, I'm personally not even a fan of their app to get the information. It, it's not as user-friendly as I think it used to be. So I think there's a market there to exploit with people that are starting to you know look elsewhere, not just to this so so-called worldwide leader yeah it's um yeah no it, it, you're, you're very accurate there and i think look it, it's sad that anybody loses their jobs especially the mass amounts of people that espn laid off but what was really disheartening i think ron i think we're in agreement of the the people that were laid off the the focuses that they laid off a lot of journalists a lot of people that you know work really hard to cover specific niche sports that that got laid off it seems like the direction they're going in you know, isn't exactly one that one that we're kind of like ideal with, and one that we're looking forward to in the future. And and I look at it this way too. I mean, the subscriber rates are, is the big thing to me. I think everything's changing, and it's hard to lock something down. Run in the future, in the next ten, twenty years, we don't know what the landscape's going to be. So to have these contracts locked in, I think it's it's pretty dangerous. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, like you were saying, that with all the people that got laid off of ESPN and things like that, I think there's definitely within the sports realm a a feeling that it's moving towards more entertainment than just, you know, sports information and, and analysts and, you know, analyzing the actual sport. It's more about entertainment and, and you know, just saying the most ridiculous things that will get the most views and the most clicks. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you see that with, 
guys like Edward get fired, but you know, a guy like Stephen A. Smith gets to stay on. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a changing world and, you know, we're evolving with it, but I think there's definitely some things that I, you know, as a sports fan, as someone that grew up, you know, loving sports and watching sports my whole life, and, you know, trying to digest as much statistical information and things like that. Entertainment is fun and good as long as it's, you know, taken in, in doses. But I think there's still a lot of reporting and journalism to be done within sports. And it's kind of sad to see, you know, one of the leaders move away from that. Yeah, I mean, just look at their website and, and look at their app, as you said, and you'll see what the headline and the headline videos are. And they're not breaking news. They're more debate-oriented, entertainment-oriented stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely. We'll, we'll have to kind of see where it goes. But... Uh, it's unfortunate at the moment as I still chat with Ron Schultz on the Money Mitch effect. Ron, I do want to talk about one thing in particular. You being an East Coast guy, being from Philadelphia, happened to be in the city when the draft was going on. And I know what the visual looked like, but what was that like in person to see all those people outside as one of the best, if not the most popular draft in NFL history was taking place? Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't I didn't get to fully, you know, experience and be in the parkway, but from everything that I saw just from driving by and from everything that I've read, it was, I mean, it, it was an absolute game changer for the draft. It completely changed the way that future drafts will be held for the NFL. They were saying that over the three days, there were 250,000 people that uh, came and went from the, from the draft site, which is just unimaginable amount of people to just go and do names called. I mean, it's, there's, there's not even any, you know, there's not even any game. There's nothing like that. It's it's just people getting their names called and coming out and grabbing the jersey. And that's only the first round. You know, the second and third round, there were still 70,000 people plus there every day. And those guys aren't even there. So you're just literally seeing names called. And I think it, it really speaks to the power of the NFL and what that brand and that sport means to the people of America and especially to the people of Philadelphia because – any any chance to get a taste of football in the offseason, I think we really saw that people are willing to to do whatever it takes to get a little bit of a taste of football in the offseason. Yeah, I mean, any chance the people of Philadelphia get to chant Dallas sucks, they're going to take advantage of it. <laughs> hey, you know. But honestly, I was I was really impressed with the city. I think they, they did a really good job. I think the look of the, the draft looked awesome. I think where they put it looks great. And honestly... Huge props to the Philly police. They announced that they had zero arrests and zero citations over the whole weekend on the draft site. Wow. That's 250,000 people that came and went. And, and, and you know, Philadelphia fans and, and the people. And you're mixing with Dallas fans and, and Giants fans and all that kind of stuff. And to have, you know, no arrests and no citations, I think definitely probably took some restraint by the police. But also kind of shows that, you know, Philly's not – the fans can be civil and, and know how to – just take this as a game and, you know, do well. So I think it was a really good look for the city, a really good look for the Eagles organization as the host, and honestly, a good look for the NFL. Yeah, it really was, and it begs the question, Ron, what's you know, next for the future of this draft? It was in New York for decades, and now, you know, they experiment, they take it to Chicago, now they take it to Philly. It's amazing. You wonder... What's the future? That If this is always going to be taken on the road, I wonder. It seems like that's the case, but I don't know that you get a crowd like Philadelphia in every single city. I mean, it's the NFL's got some interesting choices to make on the matter. 
No, and I totally agree. Uh, you know, from what I've read, there are 14 cities that are currently vying for the 2018 draft. No decisions have been made at this point from what I've heard. Uh, but one of those cities is Philadelphia again. And, and if the NFL wants to, to see if it's a viable option and not just, you know, a one-trick pony, you know, they could put it back in Philly or, or they could go somewhere else. But I think the bar was set by, by this draft. Because not that Chicago didn't do it well, because Chicago did do it well. But there's a completely different feeling when it was outside with all those people that you can just pack an entire parkway uh, with as many people as, as are willing to fit in there. And I think there's so much money to be made in a situation like that. And I think it'll, it'll never be the same because of what happened in Philly this year. The draft will never be the same going forward. It'll never be in an indoor you know, situation where they can only fit, you know, 10,000 people. I don't think that'll ever happen again because there's just not the potential to make money. Right, um, and, right. You know, as, as we know, the NFL, they really love their money. I definitely think that's true. That's the understatement of the year. I think Philly raised the bar. I think they've now, you know, gotten the draft to a point where this is what's to be expected. And I also think that, I mean, everything changes with the NFL in, in design to make money. The move to put the first round on Thursday. It's always going to be like that going forward because they want it on prime time. And now you have the draft. And, and it was just a great weekend uh, for the city of Philadelphia. I do have to ask you, though, because I've I've pulled a few Philly people to some mixed results. Do you like that first-round pick, Barnett? Oh, I absolutely do. I think okay. a lot of the people um, that don't like it haven't watched film and haven't watched the kid play. I mean, he's, he's you know, to, to use a cliche term, he's a sack artist. The guy uses his hands extremely well. He gets inside. He knows how to shed blockers. He's not necessarily an athletic specimen, but that's okay. Uh, neither was Dwight Freeney. Dwight Freeney's still playing in the NFL. And, and you know, will be in the top 10 of, of sack leaders of all time. So if you know how to get to the quarterback, I don't care how quick or fast or whatever you are, you know, it's something that can't necessarily be teached all the time. Uh, uh, and and to, stop, to solidify the defensive line, um, it's kind of where everything starts in a Jim, Jim Schwartz-based defense. Uh, if you don't get pressure on, on the quarterback, then it leaves your corners out to dry. Uh, the Eagles in general are not necessarily – at corner they, they, you know they have some questions at corner uh, you know Sidney Jones won't be back until probably October mm-hmm. uh, so and, and he's a rookie so even when he does come in he's not going to be you know a shutdown corner it's going to take some time so I think the way you compensate for that is by getting to the quarterback if you can get get guys getting to the quarterback with and that front front seven is looking better and better as the time goes on I think Barnett uh, will be a great addition to that uh, especially with the departure of Connor Barwood. Yeah, and I think, to, I mean, I really think the only, just my opinion, the only reason why some people weren't high on that pick was because they really wanted the guy that went one pick before. You know, I think that, I think Hassan Reddick was a guy that a lot of people, especially in Philadelphia with the Temple Ties, wanted, and he was right there, just right. went before. And But Barnett's a great player, and I think he's going to fit in fit in very well, too. So um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I think, I think, yeah, and I think, you know, Hassan Reddick would have been great. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, were really, really wanted Malik Hooker or whatever, but setting the line up front is so important for for a young team like we have. You know, we've got a young core on offense. And I think a lot of people were wanted Mike Williams and wanted Corey Davis, but they went early. 
and then I don't. I, I think it was good that they didn't reach on a running back. They didn't reach on Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook almost dropped to them in the second round. Yeah. Um, and if and if the Vikings hadn't you know traded up, I think honestly the Eagles would have probably taken it. So yes, while they didn't go offense, I think both of their first two picks I am very happy with, and I'm excited to see them on the field. Yeah, should be should be a, an interesting and a revamped Eagle defense going forward, Ron. And it was a it was a big weekend for the city of Philly with uh, the Flyers finishing second in the NHL draft lottery. Oh my God, we saw that. Yeah, coming. that was uh, absolutely not me and not anybody else that was a Flyers fan. I mean, how how does that happen? But I mean, it completely changed the trajectory uh, of the Flyers. Now is that you know they can go out and they can get a stud. You know, they they were sitting at thirteen. So yeah, yeah. at thirteen, you know, you might you might get you know a guy that you can you know put on the Phantoms for a year or two, but when, you know when you land one or two, it's you know you might be able to get a guy that can come in and play right away. So uh, I think Flyers fans are very excited, and it's a big. I mean, hopefully, it's the sign of things to come in in drafts is that we had you know two big time things that happened in the draft with the Eagles having the draft, the Flyers getting second in the draft, you know. The Sixers draft lottery is coming up. You know, we'll see. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. it's a sign of things to come. Yeah, who, who knows? And I think I don't think that's ever happened before, where you had the teams that were seven, ten, and thirteenth, and odds to get the lottery finish one, two, three. I'd have to check, but I yeah. can't remember that happening in hockey or basketball before. I think it's great. You know, yeah, you, I think... yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. If you get a top five guy, he's pretty much ready to play right now. Right, and that and that's something that you know the Flyers haven't necessarily had in a while. Uh, I mean, their picks have not been bad. I mean, Moran is good, and Gossip Fair is great, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, getting the game changer, I'm not saying that there's an Eichel or a McDavid or, or whatever in this draft, but, you know, getting a guy that can that can come in and contribute right away is a way that can, you know, ener- it can energize a team. Yeah, it can. And, I, I mean, look, everybody's going to say the draft is a little <laughs> down. I think the last two drafts were just abnormal. Like, we can't expect the past the top two picks in the last two years to be what the norm is. These these kids coming in are going to be great players, but yeah, it, it's foolish and it's unrealistic to think that they're going. Everybody's going to be as good as McDavid or Austin Matthews. I mean, those are very very rare. Right. So absolutely, well, and 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 that's not you know what <laughs> I'm expecting. I don't think most Flyers fans are expecting that, but I think you know either way there is some excitement thinking that you know we can go out and get a guy that we didn't think we would be able to. Yeah, well, it's certainly a fun time for the city of Philadelphia. Still chatting with Ron Schultz of Yahoo Sports on the Money Mitch Effect. And, Ron, I know we didn't talk since uh, we haven't talked on the air since the uh, NCAA title game, which was, you know, unfortunately won by North Carolina. I don't know if you heard this, though, but when when they won the title, they all got days off from their fake classes. So that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, you know, they. It's it's only a matter of time before they get you know theirs is coming, theirs is coming. I know. Uh, yeah, you know, I guess it was good for the ACC that at UNC won. You know, good luck for us being the best basketball conference and whatever. But you know, it's only a matter of time that you know their their day in court is coming, so to speak. And it does drive me crazy that it does take so long for the NCAA to act on things that seem so obvious. You know we get cracked down on after an eight year investigation for two violations. And, you know, this school has been running state classes for 10 years and here we sit and they just won the national championship and had the number two overall draft pick in football. So it does, 
beg to differ whether or not there's some type of favoritism within the NCAA, but I, I do think that their day in court is coming. Yeah, it seems likely. Uh, <laughs> you, you can't really figure out the, the, the method, the, the path that the NCAA takes, but... There isn't a method. Swinging it, really, yeah. Uh, I do have yeah. to ask you, though, as a Syracuse guy, because we also didn't talk about Mike Hopkins leaves to go to Washington. Ron, that was the guy that was supposed to take over, you know, whenever Bayham, Bayham retired. What do you think is going to be the future of the next five, ten years of the Syracuse program, and who do you think ultimately will be the next guy to coach? So I think I think the real reason that Hopkins left was because the plan was for Bayham to be done after next year. And I think the real problem was is when I bet Hopkins went to, to Jim and said, are you going to actually retire next year? And I think Jim honestly said to him, I don't know. Because I don't think Jim actually knows whether or not he's ready or he's not. Jim has been coaching at Syracuse for 41 years. I mean, to be able to give that up is not, you know, it's not an easy thing. So, like, what are you going to do with your life after that once you've been doing the same thing forever? I think it's, it's not necessarily just the thing with Jim Beheim or anything like that. I think it's the thing that a lot of retirees run into is, you know, when you've given your entire life to something, you know, what do you do after that? So I think, I think it was an uncertainty and the opportunity to go and coach a Division One program in a major, you know, a major power, power five, power six, whatever you want to call it, conference in Washington that has been able to get good recruits from the Seattle area and from other areas. That being said, Beheim got a got a an extension after that was announced through 2022, and Hopkins his contract is I think it's up actually in 2022 or 2023. So. You know, this might be a hot take, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he has kind of an agreement with Syracuse of if Jim were to actually retire, would he want to come back? I mean, it's hard to say that he wouldn't want to. I mean, he stayed with the program for 20, 25 years and turned down some really good jobs. I mean, he turned down the USD job before, uh, what's his name, took that job, and he's a Southern Cal guy. So, he, you know, he stayed in Syracuse for a reason, and I think, you know, this might actually end up being better for the Syracuse program, if he does come back, of, you know, maybe he went and he got some head coaching experience because there is a difference between being the head coach and being the assistant coach on game day. Right. He's a great recruiter, and, and Syracuse is really going to miss that. That's definitely going to, to going to hurt the program with him not being able to go on recruiting trips. But I think there is absolutely something to be said with Syracuse is a top 10 basketball program, college basketball program. So, you're going to get recruits. You're going to get four stars. You're going to occasionally stumble into that five star, whether you have Mike Hopkins or not, just because of the brand of Syracuse basketball. When what Syracuse basketball has to offer with playing in the dome and playing in front of that amount of people and being on ESPN as much as they are and getting that exposure. I mean, Syracuse gets mm -hmm. a ton of exposure. And, and you don't, it's not, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that we're Kentucky or Duke or UNC or. Or, or Kansas, or any of those top ten blue, you know, top five blue blood programs, but I think we're, you know, a half a tier lower. And I think the program itself, you know, every every program has down year. I think this year was, I, it was confusing to me that we didn't make the tournament this year and we made it last year. Yeah. Uh, because I think the wins this year were actually better, but every program has a down year or two, and and I think the churches will will end up being fine in basketball. I'm not super worried. I mean, it, it's going to be, you know, it might be a painful rebuild for, you know, a year or two more, but I, I have no qualms to thinking that eventually 
you know, within the next couple of years, Syracuse will be a top ten program once again. Yeah, you can't really blame Hopkins for eventually taking a job and, and wanting to be a head coach. Um, and I think Bayham's the right to go out on his own terms. But when you do that, you sacrifice the 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 ability to name your own successor because guys aren't going to want to just hang around forever and, and wait and then not really know what their future holds. So. Look, at the end of the day, they'll be able to get a big-name coach, whether it's Hopkins coming back or somebody, because, as you said, it's a big job. People are going to want to take it whenever Bayheim retires. So um, it, it leads to some uncertainty, but ultimately Bayheim gets to decide. He's been there 41 years when he wants to go out. And, and we've talked about this, too. As great a coach as he is, I just don't see you know the broadcasting route for him. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't see the appeal no. for him. Or, or no, I don't, yeah. I don't think so either. And I don't honestly think he would want to. I, I just think that he's been so. I mean, he just has never liked the media. He's never, nope. uh, you know, treated them. He's never treated them well. He, he always thinks of the media as this kind of prying eyes that are trying to get him to say something stupid. Um, so I think whenever he actually decides to hang it up. You know, I, I think he'll probably just simply hang it up, or you know, maybe go coach a go coach a high school team, or take a couple of years off and and just you know relax and hang with his family because I'm sure you know his entire life he's been you know go 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 watching film, doing this and that, going on recruiting trips. I mean, being a coach for that long at such a big program is not something that is stress free on you or your family. So. No. Um, you know, whatever he ends up doing, I'm I'm not sure what it's going to be, but I will agree with you that I do not think it's going to be broadcasting. Yeah, that seems like a pretty safe bet. Well, Ron Schultz, Money Mitch Effect, the last thing before we wrap this up, you know, you mentioned the draft lottery, and I can't remember a more an NBA draft lottery, a more exciting, drama-filled one coming up. I mean, I know you, as a Philly perspective, there's a lot to like and, and some to worry about, but think about, Ron, all the teams that have lottery picks that are contingent on certain things. And this should be a wild, crazy night when the balls are picked in a, in a few weeks. Oh, I totally agree. I think this might be, you know, a little biased, but this, I, I like to call it the Sam Hinkie effect of, like, it became a big thing to be trading picks for conditional, you know, trading players for conditional picks or trading a pick in one year's draft for two picks later. I mean, it, it just seems like the entire NBA is just, you know, nobody's picking where they're supposed to actually pick anymore because of all these trades, because the NBA has just become a trade-happy league. But with the Sixers and what they have going for them, I mean, they get their own pick. They get the Lakers pick if that falls out of the top three. And if somehow the Kings pick falls below theirs, they can swap with them. So, you know, there's so much opportunity for the Sixers to get one, possibly two great players at the top of this draft. And, I mean, there's an absolute buzz around the Sixers program going forward next year if we can keep, Embiid and Simmons and, and those guys healthy and whoever they end up bringing in now, Dario Sartre really turned it on towards the end of the year and became an absolute stud. So I think there's a lot of good young talent on the Sixers team and, and there's a lot of potential in this draft. I mean, this is the best guard draft I can well, remember. In, I mean, I don't honestly remember <laughs> the, the last guard draft that was as good as this. Well, yeah, that's that's the other domino in this draft. The other wrinkle is that this is one of the strongest drafts and it's going to be one of the strongest drafts, you know, and should be remembered as such. So you add that to the fact that all these teams are, are looking to pick, you know, in the top three, in the top five. Do you honestly think, though, that, you know, putting on my conspiracy hat, that the league will let the Lakers pick fall out of the top three? 
God, I hope so. But no, I personally don't think so. But I mean, it would be it would be the biggest karma thing ever because Luke Walton had that whole speech about how the basketball gods would come back to get you if yeah. you tank because he said that the Sixers he didn't agree with how the Sixers did it. And then guess what? The Lakers went out there and tanked their asses off. They just completely did. So there, you can't you know you can't talk so much smack on the Sixers for doing something and then go and do it. So I think the karma is there. Yeah. Uh, but whether or not the league will allow them to not have the pick with how big of a program they are. And, you know, I know that there's money to be made there, obviously. I mean, yeah. they're the Lakers. They're not, it's not the Bucks or, or the Timberwolves or whatever. But, but the league does have to remember that it's, it's not like the Sixers are, are a, you know, a pushover type franchise either. There's a lot of history with the Sixers franchise, and there's a lot of fans. There's a lot of money to be made with the Sixers franchise. That that team with Allen Iverson back in the day, I mean, it, that stadium was packed every single night, no question. So if the Sixers can get good again, Philadelphia can become a basketball town again as well. Yeah, they can. And if you're going to tank, I think the way to do it is how Phoenix did it at the end of the year. Just let Devin Booker score 70 in losses. I think that's probably the way to do it. It's still exciting and you're still losing games. But right, exactly. And I do want I do want to bring up one last thing before we we wrap this up. You could get that you got Philly could get a top three pick. You can get Lonzo Ball, and then you get to deal with Lavar Ball. So that's pretty cool, right? No, I want nothing to do with Lonzo Ball. I want absolutely. He can go to the Lakers for all I care. I don't care. He could drop the fourteen not, in the Lakers. Pick. You're not a big fan of the I Baller brand. Oh, I just I can't stand him. He's it's like. Everything that's wrong with youth sports, and then he just carried it to professional sports. There's a point where, you know, you have to allow Lonzo to be his own man. And I honestly feel a little bit bad for Lonzo because who's to say Lonzo didn't want to sign a $50 million offer with Nike? But but he walks in there with his dad, and his dad just starts running his mouth about, you know, wanting a partnership and this and that. Big baller brand's going to change the game or whatever. And he wants to sell Lonzo's first sneaker for $200. And it's like, dude, nobody's going to buy a Lonzo Ball $200 sneaker that doesn't have a swoosh on the side. And just nobody's going to do it. So yeah. uh, the guy is, I think he's, he's honestly, he's ruining the experience for Lonzo. And, and honestly, he's making the expectations for Lonzo so unreasonably high that no matter if he doesn't absolutely dominate whatever team he goes to, it's going to be considered a disappointment, and that's not necessarily fair. You yeah. know, because there's guys like Andrew Wiggins that, you know, Andrew Wiggins' his first year wasn't necessarily lighting the league on fire, but Andrew Wiggins right now is a very solid basketball player. So having temperate expectations on guys can allow them to grow, but having high expectations can cause them to fizzle out early and can really affect their confidence. Yeah, I just don't know who taught him to negotiate. I mean, he said he wants a billion dollar shoe deal. That's like an Austin Powers when they when they're collecting the ransom money. I don't know. Yeah, how he just, thought he absolutely has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't understand the. I mean, he's not. I think one of the big things is he's not surrounding himself with people that understand and know the business, and nobody, and that's really hurting him. And, yeah, and nobody wants to take a three person deal when you don't even know how good the other two brothers are yet. I mean, that, that's well, the other exactly, thing. Exactly. You know, we've only seen them play in high school, so it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. But, you know, he might land a big deal with, with somebody in China, with 
you know, Alta or Leading or, or, or one of those other brands that, you know, now there's guys like D Wade and, and uh, Clay Thompson that, you know, they have big time shoe brands with one of these Chinese brands. So, you know, maybe he can land one of those. But I, I just think that there's too much of a media storm and too much of a distraction to go along with, with Lonzo because of that. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate because I think the kid can play. I think he absolutely can play and he can play very well. But it's just the expectations are going to be too high and the media storm is going to be absolutely ridiculous. I'd rather take a guy like the Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, Markel Fultz, anybody like that, that, you know, they're just coming to be themselves and, mm-hmm. and to, to prove themselves in the NBA. They're not coming with any strings attached. And I think if you're picking in the top three, the expectation is already so high, why make it higher? Yeah. Well, we'll have to see. It's going to be an exciting draft lottery once we get the order, order and then ultimately where all these guys are slotted. Well, Ron Schultz, thanks for joining the show. This was fun. I hope everything's going well for you yeah, out there absolutely. in New York. Yeah, everything's been good, man. I, uh, I, uh, you know, I missed you guys out there on the, on the West Coast, but you know, it's nice being back close to the family and things like that. We'll have to get you, uh, you and the boys out to uh, out to NYC to do a little little boys weekend out here at some point. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll help with that with that West Coast sickness by sending you some snaps from uh, backstage. So we'll <laughs> Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> we'll keep sounds going. Good. Thanks again, Ron though, for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. This- Thanks again to both guests, Ron Schultz, Chris Scruggs coming on today's show the money mitch effect can be found on soundcloud itunes and google play money mitch effect with an e not an a i, I should point that out we're 80 episodes in i think you figured it out by now but if not i'm here for you you can follow me on twitter money mitch m21 a lot of hockey this week a lot of uh, different storylines i want to say everybody watch the kentucky derby this week too you know i don't know who's gonna win i like to watch it and you know then we got the preakness and the belmont the triple crown starting it's a great time we got some clay court tennis if you're into that as well hockey basketball you know so there and baseball too can't forget about baseball there's gonna be a lot of it so we better gear up for that that was the money mitch effect thanks to everybody out there for listening brian nelson thanks for him for the logo and tim adams for the beats i am mitch michaels this was the money mitch effect enjoy your weekend enjoy the sports as always.